0: I'm assuming you're all here today because your team and your bracket is busted and you figured you had nowhere else to go, so you came back. Amen. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll all cough in harmony at one point. That's how you have unity of the Spirit in the house of God this time of year as the allergies rise and the dust. And, and Tina was saying they actually pulverize dirt out where she works at and i'm like you have to pulverize dirt here like we don't have enough allergens and things running through the air they have to pulverize dirt in belvedere as well god forbid our dirt should be unpulverized amen first peter chapter 3 verses 13 through 16 says now there is now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you will be blessed have no fear then of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, I just want to invite you into this house, Lord. You know it's a hard message for me, God, because I want to faithfully deliver your word, Lord not my opinion, not what I think, God, not what I want, Lord, but what you want and what you think and what you would have to say to your people today, God. For every hungry heart that has come in, for every thirsty soul, Lord, let there be water and let there be bread and let us leave this place filled in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now that I've got you there, turn back to Judges chapter 2. I won't do quite as many as Jake did last week. I think he got half the Bible, I think, I was impressed at first that they were keeping up with it on the screen, but apparently they had preloaded those. I thought he was going through that, and they were typing those in fast, and I was like, "That is amazing. Turns out they may have cheated a little bit. But Judges chapter two, verse 20, or verse 10, says, "And that generation were all get, were also gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel." We have almost lived to see that come to pass. We're pretty close. They call us a post-Christian nation, and the series has been on 10 questions the world is asking that the church needs to answer. There's a book I like by C.S. Lewis called God in the Dock, and when I first thought about it, I'm like, what do you mean God in the Dock? Is this a nautical book, right? Except that him being English, his term for dock means the witness stand. And he said that in times past, It had always been that we understood that one day we would stand before God and so people lived their lives as one day they would have to give an account and we always thought God is up here and one day he's going to judge us and so we live our lives that way. But nowadays we've turned that around and we've put God on the dock and we say, why should we worship you as God? Why should we acknowledge you as God? Why can't we just live our lives the way I want? And how dare you demand anything of us, right? Right? And not only has God been on the dock, but the church has been on the dock. A lot of people in our culture today do not see a purpose or a reason even in church. And one of the reasons we're doing this series, the 10 questions that the world is asking that the church needs to answer, is because of this verse in Peter that says, we have to be able to give an account for the hope that is in us, but we've got to do it in a way they can receive it, right? It's said to be gentle with them, right? Not beat them over the head. And, and that's going to come into play because today we're talking about what about the hypocrites, Um, Let me just kind of do a quick review. Question one were, are Christians perfect? What rules do you need to follow to be a Christian? Some of us were raised on rules-based theology, right? How many of you kept enough of them to be saved, right? You, You had to figure out what the big ones were so that you didn't cross those lines. Question two was, why a church? That was on our membership Sunday as we took in new members. What's the point of assembling here each Sunday? And can I tell you something? I think that question was answered more last Sunday night than it was on the Sunday mornings, right? That for our sermons and our gatherings, last Sunday night, for those of you that missed it, man, we just had a move of God in this place. And we just had prayer. And, and I'll be honest, I came in a little drained and I left a little, a little more full, amen, that I felt like the Lord had really just put something in me in being in that service. I feel like a lot of times when, we only, when we're only there on Sundays, not to nag anybody, I'm not nagging, right, but you miss a lot of the intimacy and family that comes about from Christians gathering on Sunday nights, on Wednesday nights, and on the other nights of the week. Question three last week was, Jake, what if I can do it on my own? And we kind of took that Wednesday and talked about how pride and our desire to control our identity prevent us from forming real relationships. Everybody fill out their pie chart made a pie chart for everybody and they divided how many pieces of the pie you give to different parts of your life i made joe and bethany do it too right and they you know and we're talking about how each time you divide that other piece of that pie off right there's less of you to go around and there's less for god in that space because you got all these different things that are asking for a piece of your identity and then some of these answers are taught and some of them are found but if we think that natural answers will fill a spiritual hunger we are deceiving ourselves amen so, today's question is, what about the hypocrites? Show of hands, how many, will you, how many of you will raise your hands if I ask a question and ask you to raise your hand? See? Well, this is going to make the next three questions really odd. Thank you, John. Um, John's got my back, right? So, how many of you think the church has struggled with hypocrisy at some point in its past? Show of hands, a couple of you. Some of you are like, no, church is good with that, we're fine, why? Um, now, raise your hands if you think that you are a hypocrite may some of us okay everyone who didn't raise their hand is um and i'll explain that in a second (laughs) and now how many of you think that this is the first time in history that the church has had to deal with hypocrisy right in fact um The word hypocrisy that we're going to be studying here in a second is used in the New Testament. Already by the time of the New Testament, it already meant someone who pretended to be somebody they weren't, but it originally was the name for actors. A a hypocrite was an actor, but the thing about an actor is they would go on stage and they would put on a mask and they would pretend to be somebody else, right? And so already by the time of Jesus, it was a word in common use for someone who pretended to be something that they were not. So... I could, I could go on and on about the masks that we all managed to slip on before we walked in here today. You know, my tie's even kind of a mask, right? Because my wife says, you look more respectable in the tie, so I want to look more respectable and believable, so I put on a tie. Now am I pretending to be somebody fancier than I am? Maybe a little bit. Casey got me a pocket watch, right? I want to look presentable if I come in. In a certain way, people might not listen to me, so I want to change my behavior for the people that are going to hear so they can receive what I have to say. And there's a sort of hypocrisy to that, isn't there? In fact, in some churches, it gets, so, it gets to the point where they call it high church, right, where you only come in in your best clothes. You only come in in your, you know, um, we went to a service once. On, we were on staff with a pastor, and he, it was a senior pastor, us, and one other ministry couple were going, and it was to an all-African-American church, and we all dressed in all black. We didn't, we didn't mean to. We just kind of did. We all showed up. We're like, wow, we're all wearing black. And we got there, and everyone else in the church was wearing all white. But they were dressed... For high church and i mean they had the hats they had the veils they had gloves and just the full thing and let me tell you except for the pastor who was dressed in all purple head to toe shirt tie shoes i don't know where he shopped at but i would go there right but they had high church and so everybody dressed up for it there was a time and how many of you have ever invited someone to church and they didn't think they had something they could wear to church So what happens in that moment is then our preference for looking nice at church all of a sudden becomes a stumbling block for someone who feels like if I go to church and I can't dress like you do, then all of a sudden I can't go to church and now we've excluded someone from the body. Very easily, the traditions that we set up can become gateways that keep people out of the kingdom of God. When I started getting into verses on hypocrites, you know, all of them were by Jesus, right? I mean... (laughs) Outside of him, people didn't use that word a lot in the New Testament, and yet he was not afraid of that word at all, as we're going to see here in a second. (laughs) If I knew the song, I'd sing with it. There's two types of hypocrites. There's what the world considers a hypocrite, and what the world considers a hypocrite is someone who says one thing but does another. Right? When Jesus speaks of hypocrites, as we'll see here in Matthew chapter 7, he generally refers to people who seem to be something but are another they don't necessarily say they are that thing but let's say you go into a hospital and you see a guy guy wearing a white coat and a stethoscope right you're going to assume that guy's a doctor Right? But it could just be a guy who likes to dress in white coats and stethoscopes, right? There's no actual rule that says the police are going to arrest you for wearing a white coat and stethoscope around, right? If you wear your scrubs into church, somebody's gonna be like, they must work at a hospital or a medical facility. They just may not have feel like getting dressed this morning, right? And they just wear the scrubs in. There's no actual rule about that, but we would think something is wrong if somebody were pretending to be something that they weren't. I felt awkward once they were doing something in a post-9-11 thing and they wanted someone to represent a fireman, and I was like, well, in the military. I was on fire party, so they wanted me to wear a fireman's uniform. And I'm like, well, I never would have worn this. I would have worn a Navy uniform, you know, but they, they wanted somebody to fill that spot. So I was like, well, I guess I'll fill that spot, but I felt really weird representing firemen. Now, I, I was a number one nozzleman, and I was a borderman, and I went through fire party training and all that, but it still felt weird to wear someone else's uniform, something that I had never worn, right? And yet, sometimes in church, we wear the uniform of Christians, and I don't just mean how we dress, but I mean how we speak sometimes we use words we use phrases we use certain jargon that only other christians understand and we use it to see who's like us do you know whenever you make a joke you're you're checking to see if somebody finds your joke funny it's because you both assume something else about the humor that you know if i were to joke on a political party and you laughed then i would assume you were my of my political party right and if you gave me that look, I'd say, "Oh, you're the enemy, you're the other guy because nowadays, you can only be one party or the other, and if you're one party, you have to hate the other one, right? Isn't that a thing? Don't we have to hate people that aren't in our do we I don't know. I don't I try not to get into that. But the greatest accusation that this generation will level at someone is that you're a hypocrite. It's like a cudgel, right? Hypocrite, you're a hypocrite. And hypocrites will use, they'll use the phrase hypocrite to justify worse behavior. Let me give you an example because, you know, I kind of check all the different resources on this and I find the Wikipedia page on hypocrite, right? And it was kind of interesting because you go down there and it mentions United States hypocrisy that that the United States put Japanese people in internment camps during World War II and the Japanese use that fact as propaganda um, in their own countries and to justify some of their actions. Well, if anybody knows how the Japanese behaved in World War II, there were things like the Bataan Death March, right, where hundreds and hundreds of soldiers died, and they used the hypocrisy of what was happening in America to commit a worse atrocity. In fact, sometimes somebody will be doing something that is just very obviously bad, and you'll say to them, you should not do this thing that is just very obviously bad, and they'll look at you and say, well, you do such and such right? It doesn't matter what it is. All it has to be is enough to poke the veneer to say, well, you're not perfect either, and if you're not perfect, I'm allowed to do whatever bad thing I want to do, right? Do we realize how flawed that is, right? Well, sometimes you do this too, you know, so you, you drive over the speed limit, so if I go run over a couple people on my way to work, what's the difference, right? We're both disobeying the law. It's just a matter of degree, right? But it's an interesting thing because if they, once they call you a hypocrite, it immediately takes away all of your credibility. And here's a the question they always they used to ask you, where were you when Kennedy was shot? Well, where were you when Jimmy Swaggart fell? Right? Where were you when Jim Baker fell down after him? Where were you when, the, when the, priest, the Catholic priest scandal came out? You know, you go to work that day and you know, oh my gosh, I can't believe they found another one. It's happening again. And now the world can look at us and say, hypocrite, hypocrite, hypocrite. You can't tell us anything. Look what's happening among your own, right? Look at the, look at the size of the house that one preacher has. Look at His board bought him a, what did they buy him, a Bentley or something like that. I can't get my church board to buy me a plane. I've asked, you know, I have a, we'll bring it up in a bit. I just want one plane, right? And they see that and they say, look at how they misuse funds or they spend money at this place or that place. You're obviously all hypocrites and they can just poke that hole and now you can't say anything about anything because... You're all kind of labeled, with the same way. It's like a giant cudgel. Once I can call you a hypocrite, you can't say anything back. That is the greatest condemnation our society offers today. Hypocrite, hypocrite, hypocrite. And they do it to remove the church from society, don't they? Now, let's go to Matthew chapter 7. Speaking of verses that get misused, the two verses I think in the Bible that get misused the most are avoid the very appearance of evil, In Matthew chapter 7, from different directions. Avoid the very appearance of evil. I've had them apply that from everything from um, Pokemon to anything. Candy cigarettes, right? You couldn't have bubblegum cigarettes because they look like real cigarettes, and if they look like real cigarettes, it's it's just you might as well be smoking, right? So they take that verse and apply it down to anything. Well, (laughs) you can... You can use that verse that way, but that's not how it was written or intended. And then the other side of this is everybody wants to throw this one back at Christians. Matthew chapter 7, judge not that you not be judged. Right? You can't judge me. You don't know me. Like if I knew you, that'd make any difference, right? (laughs) They're robbing a bank. You don't know me. (laughs) Maybe you are a good guy. You're just robbing a bank right now, and you're having a bad day, so you thought now would be a good time to rob a bank. You don't know me, right? Judge not, lest ye be judged. One of the most misused verses in the Bible. And it says, "For for with judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And if you're in the King James, it says take the plank out, right? And that's important because there was a group called Plank Eye and that was the place I first met my wife. Well, second place. I met her at church and then I met her at a Plank Eye concert. It's just a little bit of trivia for you. It's not here to condone sin, but, the point is to, but it's to point the fact that fixing your own sin is more important than trying to fix others. Now, let me ask you something. Gareth, you're my son, right? As far as I know, right? But if I come up and try to get something out of your eye, right, if you don't know me and I start reaching for your eyeball, what is your immediate reaction, <laughs> Is there anybody that's like, oh yeah, what what is it? Just just put your finger in there. Please, feel around. See if you can find anything, right? What I love about that illustration is the idea of somebody coming up to get something out of your eye, regardless of the situation, is bad. I don't want anyone in this church sticking their finger in my eye, please. I don't think I ask a lot as a pastor, but that's one of those things I'm going to have to insist on. Don't put your finger in my eye. Okay? Even if I know you well, there has to be a level of trust. There has to be communication. Hey, I'm coming to get something out of your eye. Hold still, right? If I just start coming up to you, I'm going to get back in the karate chop stance, right? I'm going to know kung fu all of a sudden, and we're going to go Jackie Chan over this because I don't want a finger in my eye. Now imagine the person is wearing glasses and using a cane to get to you and trying to get something out of your eye. Now it's even worse, right? Because in this situation, they've got a big log over their face they've got a beam in their eye and they're reaching for your eye so what is your natural reaction let me tell you what this means it means you're never going to criticize or pick someone apart to the point where they get better did you know that you're never going to find that one thing that's wrong with somebody and remind them of it over and over until they finally say hey i'm gonna get better You know you've you've (laughs) what's the old saying, Uh, husbands? It says if your husband tells you he's going to do something, there's no need to remind him every six months, right? Um, And all the wives said, "Boo!" Um, And that's okay. People people who don't trust you will never let you remove something in their eye. They naturally shrink back. Why? Because they're most vulnerable there. What I find about people who are intent on picking something out of somebody else's eye are they're generally the people with the least amount of mercy. Amen? I worked with a lady once, and um, I, I kind of worked to the side of her, but everybody that ever had to do anything for her was always really careful with everything they did for her because she complained about everything they did, not to them, but to their boss right? So every time you went out with this lady, no matter what was going to happen, she was going to come back and give the boss a full report of every mistake you had made during that entire process. And I learned really quick that whenever she needed help with something, I would do exactly what she said and I would not do a thing more because if I did one thing more, if I took any initiative on my own, she was going to be really upset and tell the boss and be like, hey, I asked him to do this and he did two things instead. And instead of put up with that, I just kind of withdrew myself as much as I could from the situation, did exactly what I had to do, but stayed away from that person. A lot of people live lives not realizing that sometimes if you're going to pick people apart, they will put distance between themselves and you. And more than that, when you get to the place where you've always got to pull something else out of somebody else's eye, and you lose that place of mercy that God has to deal with you on these things. Let me tell you what happened to that person. She had to quit work about a year after I got there because of ulcers and because of stress and because of everything that was just taking a physical toll on her body because she was always so worried about what everybody else was doing. It kills you to try and take care of the whole world. It would kill me as a pastor to sit down each day, write down everybody's name, okay, what's wrong in their life? I need to call them up and talk to them about that. Gareth, I think you've been eating too much ice cream, lady. Hey, Taylor, what about that movie you went and saw? Was that really a Christian movie? I mean, there was, you know, a swear word in there. You need to, you know, let's, let's get on you about that, right? Or, hey, I happened to notice you did something the other day, and I just wanted to point out to you that it was wrong, and you were wrong to do it, Okay. I would be in a pretty empty church, I would guess, within a week or two. Amen. Because you'd be like, I ain't gotta be there. I'm gonna be there when that guy's just gonna criticize me all the time. And yet, we have people in our lives that we're just we're just fine doing that to. We're fine just finding that little speck and saying, Hey, you need to you need to fix this. 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 Are you annoyed yet? You need to fix this. You need to fix this. You need to fix this. Right? And what's that person eventually going to do? They're going to try to find the hypocrisy in your life because the one cudgel they have is to swing back and say, but you're a hypocrite. As soon as you mess up, they're going to be there with that cudgel. You're a hypocrite. You're always picking on me and look what you did wrong, and they're just going to blindside you with that thing, aren't they? And do you know that's what happened to the church? Do you know we got so obsessed with picking out the sin in people's lives when they walked in the door that people stopped walking in the door? Did you know we got so, you know, if you talk to somebody that's my age and they talk about going into church, there's an honest to God feeling that when they walked in that back door, everyone that made eye contact was trying to figure out what's wrong with them, right? Has anybody, has anybody in here ever walked into a church? I've walked into a church and I'm like the best Christian ever, right? I'm a pastor, I'm called of God and I still had people trying to figure out what my angle was. Yeah, but you're here so there's something wrong right you wouldn't just you wouldn't just come here if you weren't just you know a broken human being and intent on inflicting evil on others so what's the secret right what do you what do you got going on right amen we can say it we might as well say it because that's how the world feels a lot of times when they think about this and we have to be equipped and ready to tell them why it's not that now we talked about this a couple wednesdays ago about why did jesus curse the fig tree right Because the fig tree was supposed to have fruit on it, and it didn't. It looked like a tree that would give food. It acted like a tree that would give food. But when you actually needed nourishment from this thing, there was nothing there. Most of the time, you can't invite a person to church or to be a part of a church if there's nothing in your life that they want. If they look at your life and think, I don't want to be anything like that person, then let me tell you, you're going to have a hard time convincing them that your church is a place they should be. Because they're going to be like, well, if this is how it turns out, right? If I gave you a piece of cake and it was horrible, right? Like you had to like smile and chew, you know, and wait till I broke eye contact to spit it in the trash, right? And then I said, do you want the recipe? No, you don't want the recipe. It's terrible, right? And yet, if what they're getting from our lives is bitter, terrible fruit, and then we're like, but you should come to my church, that's where I kind of learned about Jesus. And they're going to be like, well, I don't know. But if there's something in your life that they do want, if you do reflect the joy when there's reason not to have it, when you love them unconditionally, when everyone else abandons abandons them, and you're the one person that says, you know what, it's going to be all right, and you're going to get through this then they're going to see something in your life that they want, and that's what's going to draw them, right? Because that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's the Lord planting something in our lives, seeing it grow, and then we actually have that response to it so that there's something that we can nourish. You know, we should be nourishment to the world. The body of Christ, when you think about us, that we're the body of Christ, but what do we do every month with the body of Christ? We eat it, right? Because the body of Christ is also bread, it's nourishment. When we take in Christ and we take in his suffering, we're taking a part of his life into us and other people should be able to take out of our life. Even sinners, even people in darkness. You know, we were raised to, you know, you've got to cut yourself off from the world and you can't have people around you that are going to influence you to do bad. But we need to have people around us that we're influencing them to do some good. We need to have people around us that are just lost heathens. I mean, if you don't have an unsaved friend, go find you one. Go find someone that looks like they're a train wreck and put your arm around them and say, you know what, I'm just going to walk beside you. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to tell you how to live your life, but I'm going to live in front of you because of how Jesus has made me in such a way that you're going to want to get out of that place you're in. You're going to look at me. You're going to wake up in the morning and think, man, what does Taylor have that I don't have? What is about her? That girl is always smiling. She always seems to have something in her heart. Trials don't seem to shake her. The world doesn't seem to move her. I wonder what it is about her. And we've got to live our lives before men in that kind of way. Because the only antidote to hypocrisy is authenticity, right? Being real in front of people. One of the reasons why I love the idea of barnwood in the church, especially this, and I always say this, that that, that wood stood outside for you know 60 years or 100 years or however long it stood outside beaten by the weather you know and oh my gosh is Illinois just trying to wipe the stain of humanity off its face or what I mean the wind comes down and it rains sideways here right we had one it flooded in this one little pocket over our house because it rained in sideways one day and got in the little that one little gap right there because the rain's coming at 90 degrees and and all that weather and everything that happens here and just beat this shed down and beat this shed down and yet there it is still standing and now today it sits in our baptismal and every time we come in here we just look at it and we don't know the story of how each piece of wood had to endure day after day of torment i mean the seasons probably changed to where one day it was 70 and the next day it was 35 what is wrong with this place d what is wrong with it right and yet there it is still standing there it is still existing there it is not moved And now it's in a place where it's actually being, I don't want to say glorified, but we put it there to remind us of the old rugged cross that our Savior hung on, and we see it, we get inspiration from it. We know that it survived through those kind of things, and it does look kind of rugged, and we look kind of rugged sometimes. But when there's something inside of us that the world wants, right? When there's something inside of us that we are nourishment to them, that when you're around a Christian, you should walk away feeling like you got something from that. Has anybody ever been around people? And the longer you're around them, the tireder you get, right? We all have those people in our lives, right? Usually it's family. Um, God bless them. Um, but we should be the kind of people that the longer people are around us, the more nourished they feel, the more encouraged they feel. Let me get back to my notes. Where were we? Right after that, number six says, do not give to the dogs do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. That's an odd thing to put right at the end of don't, don't judge, right? What does that have to do with not judging people and not picking at them and not being critical and all that? Well, here it is, and you've all seen this on Facebook, that somebody has a wrong opinion. Look at your opinion out there all wrong, right? And somebody else... Well meaning, right? But not really that close to the person. Kind of your your you know, kinda of you know you're a friend of a friend, but you end up on Facebook and you're like, hey, your opinion is a little wrong and I just wanted to help you fix that, right? And they're like, Thank you for fixing my opinion now that it is wrong, I have changed my mind and have come to believe just as you do, sir. Right? When it says don't give to the dogs what is holy and don't throw your pearls before pigs there is something about a Christian that is nourishing. And there is something about us that encourages others. And when Christ is in your life, just being around, and it doesn't mean you're the paragon of virtue, standing up there clean and never sinned, but it means that even when you fall, you get back up, and you're still reaching for that higher call of Christ. But sometimes (laughs) you're trying to feed someone who doesn't want your food. Right? A guy said once that, that sometimes trying to explain Christ to people, trying to explain what a Christian life to people is trying to explain, like to a kid that lives in the slums and has only made mud pies all his life, what a vacation on the beach is like, right? They have no concept of that. All they want is their mud pie and to be left alone and to play in their own little filth, right? And sometimes trying to explain to them that there's more that they could be out of this, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense to them. And sometimes we're trying to feed people who don't want what we have. Most of the time, it's because we don't have the relationship to the point where they will receive from us. Man, you know, some people you can know all your life and they won't receive from you because they've known, all, known you all your life, you know? Some people, oh, that's just Elaine, you know, that's just how she is, right? And then you have other people that don't know you well enough, right? And they're like, I have no idea who you are, why are you talking to me, strange lady, Right? But then you have the people that you've been intentionally relational with, that you said to yourself, I'm going to get in this person's life, and I'm going to disciple them, and I'm going to mentor them, and I'm going to stand beside them. And you know what? Discipling and mentoring doesn't mean you're telling them what to do. It just means you're kind of, you're kind of you know, hey, um, when I run into this situation, this is what I do, and this is just kind of how I deal with it, and it comes out well for me. Because sometimes, have we ever had those people in our lives, Mona, that just make bad decision after bad decision? Just, I mean, just can't win for losing, right? Every time they take one step forward, they take two steps back, and you don't know what to do with them except to love on them and wrap them around. You know, that's why mercy people are there, right? Mona and I joke, she's a big mercy person, I'm a big mercy person, and we're there, and every now and then people will be like, well, why don't you come down on so-and-so about this, that, and the other? And I'm thinking, that's not going to fix them, you know? I can come down like the hammer. I can let you know what you're doing wrong. If you need a list, come in my office. We'll write out a list of everything that's wrong with you, right? Not going to fix anything, is it? Because we all have to get to Christ in our own way, in our own time. Now, here's the big line. The big line is, at what point are we not struggling with sin, and at what point are we being a hypocrite? Because the reason why I said every one of us in here is a hypocrite is because I hope to God that every person in here believes the Word of God and is striving to live a life holy before God, and you know what? You're going to fail. Not a person in here, because, man, I see things in here, and I think I'm pretty good, and I think I'm doing pretty well, and I'll read something in there, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, right? We were talking, and he was talking about um, some baby Jesus this morning, because they're only Christian and Easter uh, people, so if you only show up on Christmas and Easter, then you see the birth of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus, and you can skip the whole Sermon on the Mount. Right? Which is great, because all the things he actually tells you, you know, hey, don't do this, do this, watch out for this. You can skip all that if all you ever have to see is the birth and the death, right? You can skip all the parts in between where people would stop following him because what he said was too hard to follow. Because everybody realized, you're not going to make it. You're not going to get there. You're not going to be perfect. But there is a line between struggling with sin and being a hypocrite. and You know what that line is? It's when you stop struggling. And you justify. Well, now it's no longer something I do because I'm flawed and because the Lord is working on me. But you know what? It's okay that I do that. It doesn't matter that I do that. It's fine that I do that. You shouldn't criticize me because I, you shouldn't look down on me because I do that. All of a sudden, you're not struggling against the sin. You're comfortable with it. and You justify it. And that's the only real line. And the problem is, is I can't draw an internal line outside, can I? I can't look at Mona and say, wow, Mona, you've been struggling with that sin long enough that I've decided you've struggled with it too long. Right? I've decided, Mona, that you've just struggled in that thing too long. I'm going to go ahead and draw the line you're out. Go. Right? And that's why he says, judge not lest you be judged. Because if you draw the line on somebody else, God has every right to draw that line on you. Because what he says, if you won't forgive someone their sins, your heavenly Father is not going to forgive you yours right so when he says judge not he's not saying because he goes right back here in a few minutes and he says that you're going to know people by their fruit right that bitter water doesn't come out of a fresh well so it's not that we have no judgment oh i'm just going to assume all of you are living a holy life and everything you do is just a voice from god coming through you to me and and i'm going to listen to everything you say no because i know people are at different places in their walk but the one line i will not draw is i will not draw the line that says you're no longer allowed to come to christ because i feel like you've been sinning too long i feel like you're too messed up. I feel like the sin that you're committing is too wrong for me to forgive. And that's why we come back, and we'll come back to this next week about being accepted in church, or the week after. I think RU is going to be here next week, um, which is going to be amazing. Um, that when the homosexuals started coming against the church, right, and, and they started saying, hey, you let people commit adultery, you let people commit fornication. You let people gossip. You let them lie. You let them cheat. And all of them get to stay in the church. Why do you kick us out? Right? Because that was the one sin that we couldn't forgive. That was the one thing. It was repugnant. It's disgusting. I don't want to be around it. And so those people would be ostracized in a different way. Even if the person next to you was running off with the organist. We don't have an organ, so I can say that, right? preacher run off with the organist we will forgive him, but if you're, if you're gay... If you're struggling with homosexuality, if you're in that kind of sin, we can't forgive that, right? And so the worst part about them calling us a hypocrite is they were right. Holding my breath, going to the next page. Authenticity is a cure, but to be authentic, we must be Supernatural. Let me tell you, let me give you an answer to this question. If somebody were to say to you, the church is full of hypocrites, do you know what the answer to that person always is? Always? Always. This is the answer always to that person that looks at you and says, the church is full of hypocrites. Why don't you come to my church? Why would I? Your church is full of hypocrites. Look them right back in the eye and say, yes, but that's not the reason you don't go to church. Because that's not the reason they don't go to church. Because as much as we'd like to say, hey, because it's full of hypocrites, I don't have to go, I don't have to associate, it, I don't have to be in there. The real reason they don't go to church is because at some point they went into a church and they felt rejected. That's why they don't go. When they tell you it's because the church is full of hypocrites, look them right back and say, that's not the reason you don't go. Because the real reason they don't go is because they felt personally rejected about something that was in their life that they didn't feel forgiven for, and that's why they keep the wall up, and it has nothing to do with how many other people are struggling in church, right? But when we're not authentic and we're in our best clothes and we're looking our best and we're letting everybody know how holy our lives are, right? That sometimes somebody coming in can feel a little unworthy, right? They can feel a little like, well, I'm too messed up to be in this place. We gotta be real with people. We don't glorify in our sin, there's nothing I do wrong that I'm happy about. And whenever I confess my sin, and most of the time it's being snappy with my wife. I don't know why that is. That's you know what James say, if you can control your tongue, you're a perfect man. Well I am that close to perfect, right? It's, However wide my tongue is, that's how close I am to perfect, right? Because you have trouble keeping that mouth. You just get hungry or you get angry or somebody cuts you off. I was explaining to somebody the other day, the reason you glare at someone in traffic is they cut you off. How will they know they did something wrong if I don't fix it, right? If I don't glare at them, how will they know their driving was bad? You need to see this angry look so that you understand I did not appreciate how you were driving, right? Right? Do I have any relationship with that person? Am I discipling them? Am I helping them in any way? Or am I just letting myself release that anger and be angry about it, right? And I'm okay with mentioning that. I'm okay with telling you guys I don't always do things perfect. You may catch me out there someday and I might stumble in some way. And you know what? It doesn't change whether or not I'm called of God to be the pastor, does it? Now, obviously, (laughs) if I'm out there at the club or something and you see me out there, hey, pastor, really, right? But being a pastor doesn't make you perfect. When I first got my credentials, I was in Springfield, Missouri. Springfield, Missouri, the Mecca of the assemblies of God. We all as pastors have to put our mats towards Springfield and pray three times a day. It's a requirement, right? And I remember I was at the board and, and they were they were like, you know, they asked me like a couple of questions and I'm me being the shining star that I am. They're like, Well, on your test you missed a question. I was like, Did I? And they're like, Are you impressed? You did that well? I was like, No, which one did I miss? They were easy, right? Because that's me, I'm a superstar. And I was just, you know, really cocky and all that. And I turned to them right as they you know, signed off all my paperwork, said, hey, you're a minister. And I turned around and I said, now all I have to do is be perfect and never sin again, right? That's how you keep your card in the AG. And they all laughed. And we all laughed for the same reason. Because we all know it's not true. And yet it's expected. Right? And that's the dichotomy of being a Christian is that you're always going to have something greater that you aspire to and you're not there yet. But we keep struggling and we keep trying because the more we become like Christ, the more we're going to make a difference in this world. Do you know what this Bible says people do? It says that people were dead and they went and prayed for them and they got back up. It says that people were sick and just the shadow of a man walked over them and they were healed and I've never done that in my life. My shadow hasn't healed anybody but I believe enough of this book that one day God can bring that to pass in my life and it may not be a standard that I have attained to yet but I am still going to not that that which is apprehended has apprehended me but I'm still pushing for the mark because one day God's going to do miracles and there's a path to the miraculous and there's a path to the supernatural and there's something the world can't deny with any sort of claims of being hypocritical critical, when the power of God moves in and changes someone's life, when we're a supernatural church, when we're not a church that's arguing, oh, well, this is your point and that's your point. No. When we're a church that says the blind see and the lame walk and the addicts are free and the people that are trapped in a lifestyle are released from that lifestyle, when that's the kind of church we go to, we won't need to argue. We won't need to debate anything when the dead rise up. Did you know that when we lay hands on the sick and they recover, we don't have to argue any kind of theology or eschatology or hermeneutics or anything else. If our God shows up like he showed up for Elijah and we're calling fire down from the sky and lives are being changed every week, we don't have to worry about how smart we sound because the power of God will be a witness to his work in this church. Amen? Let's all stand. Praise team if you want to come up and